Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We've got a special uh, guest with us, Mez McConnell. If you want to come up all the way from Scotland, if you want to give him a Queensland welcome, that'd be awesome. We, uh, Mez was with us yesterday. Uh, we had a bunch of people gather yesterday uh, at uh, Southside where we had a day thinking about how we can care for people in church who are hurting. It was an awesome day. Then if you missed it, I think we do have the recording somewhere as well. So It will be available. It will be available. We just got to edit some of the, yeah, anyway. Hey, Miss. I feel like I'm on a children's TV show or something. Yeah. <laughs> I've We're got not the one wearing the beanie. <laughs> no, I've got a puppet I'm going to introduce you to. Thanks for joining us. Tell us, um, where are you from? Uh, I'm originally from Ireland, actually, the Republic of Ireland, but I've uh, been a pastor in Edinburgh, Scotland for the last 17 years. Nice. So what are you doing in Australia? Been doing a little tour, um, visiting. I've been to Sydney this oh, trip. So can I just ask, you've spent a week or so in Sydney? Yeah. You've come up to Brisbane? Yeah. What's the comparison, Brisbane and Sydney? Oh, Sydney's much better. <laughs> I feel like but, I've but been thank, set up th here. Thanks for asking that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love this, yeah, I love this place. Uh, definitely more chill atmosphere around this place, right, than... Um, in Sydney, yeah, really good. I like the, I did, like the buzz here. Yeah. We did put you up at the Glen Hotel as well, so that might have a You did, bit. and that is a... What a gaff that is. So what are you doing in Australia? Absolutely no idea, mate. Look, uh, but at this point, I have no idea what day it is. Um, so I've just been um, visiting some uh, churches uh, and church leaders. I, I, I run... A couple of ministries. One ministry is a ministry called Church in Our Places, where we train and equip uh, pastors around the world to um, better serve uh, in poor communities. Uh, obviously, here we're, 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 we'd be meeting with uh, men and women who are ministering in housing commissions, uh, often under-resourced, often under-supported. So I've just been sort of talking about that. And then been doing some workshops on uh, abuse, addiction, and some other stuff I now cannot remember. Yeah. Uh, so you're in Australia for a bit over a week, yeah. spending a whole weekend with us. Yeah. Um, how are you handling it coming to the end? This is your last day, officially. This is the last this? time I'm going to speak today. Yeah, nice. The, um, so hence the, the constant stream of coke is keeping away. You, you feel a need to... I, protect me from my coke addiction, don't you? Uh, yeah. yeah. Be better drank than sniffed is the saying in Edinburgh. <laughs> and I should introduce you, when somebody's walking around with coke around here, it's usually rum and coke. So I just want to say, it's just coke. Who knows that I'm not? Well. Can I just say something? Because the guys, you guys looked after me really well. This is for the older ones out there. It has been freaky, a little bit surreal, to be shown around and hanging out with Drew Carey from Whose Line Is It Anyway? in America, and if you're too young to understand that, Google Drew Carey, C-A-R-E-Y, whose line is it anyway? Trust me, 
you won't be disappointed. <laughs> when Mez first mentioned that um, a couple of nights ago when we were having a beer, I thought it was inappropriate then, even oh, more oh, so yeah. now. Oh, but... it's, oh, I'm totally inappropriate, so. <laughs> but I'm easy with that. I'm gone in a couple of hours, so. <laughs> now, I want to ask, uh, so you, you said you're doing workshops with people in, uh, well, particularly, 20 Schemes is kind of housing commission areas, is that right? Yes, yeah, so I run another ministry which is um, my main ministry, which is called 20 Schemes in Scotland. Uh, scheme is somewhat of a cross between a housing commission, a trailer park, and a North American Indian reservation. Very difficult to describe them, but my scheme is 200 years old. People have lived, families have lived in the scheme for 200 years. And that comes with lots of um, social issues. And um, about 45% of Scotland live in schemes and practically zero dollars is being spent reaching into our communities. And so 10 years ago, so we started a ministry to plant or revitalize 20 gospel churches in, 20 of, in, in Scotland's poorest communities. Yeah, oh, that's, that's awesome and super encouraging to hear about the work that you guys are doing. Yeah. Can you give us um, one of the highlights, I suppose, of working ministry in that area and one of the biggest challenges of... of Working in an area like yeah. that as well. Well, 10 years ago, nobody was talking about schemes unless it was derogatory. Um, certainly no one was being encouraged to, you know, move into ministry or begin churches. Very middle class culture in the U UK of Christianity. Um, very quite elitist in places. And often the traditional route to ministry in middle class churches is usually... Yeah, you get an apprentice, and then they maybe they do a course, they maybe they join or do a degree, maybe they join a church as a youth worker, and then they become an assistant pastor, and then an associate, and then da 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 da, da. and then the dream is let's get a big church like this, and but very few are going the other way and saying, you know what, there's a massive, massive hole filled with two and a half million people in Scotland who are literally an unreached people group. You would, 10 years ago, the numbers in this room today, 10 years ago, would have outnumbered the, the amount of believers in the schemes of Scotland. And so what the encouragement is, we've got 18 works now, and every week we're hearing of, you know, people, ones and twos, being saved around Scotland, and we're seeing churches grow and develop. And man, you, you can't beat that. It's amazing. God is good. So. So how does it compare? You walk into a church like this. Yeah. What, yeah, what, what sort of... So you're the pastor of the church or going through a transition of planning another yeah, church? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. What's the lay... What, what's the difference? I mean, to be honest, yeah, it's hard to adjust when you come into a church like this because it's such a dive, such a dump, isn't it? Uh, so, yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm really beneath myself today. But, uh, yeah, look, it's different. Your cube is bigger than the building we have. I'm, I've just stepped down as the senior pastor of Nidria at my church after 17 years, and we're just gathering a small team to move across the city to um, a really, really, really rough uh, place. And we've got a small building which we need to refurb, but you know, everything is much smaller, certainly more expensive, um, but the opportunities to preach the gospel are incredible and so yeah so you shared with us yesterday a story about um a guy from the soccer team yeah yeah like football the, with the 
the, um... That's about the only thing you took from America, right, was the word soccer. The rest, you yeah. generally speak English. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, Sorry, I soccer, bought Mez of Brisbane Broncos uh, beanie, but I I'm, thought he had plenty of beanies. I'm but, easy. Um, the, so you're working in a hard place. You've been in Nidri for 16-odd years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was the big deal about this, this footballer coming to faith? Well done. Um, yeah, so I've run a football team in my community for the last 15 years, largely run, largely attended by lunatics, a combination of lunatics, drug dealers, murderers, and petty criminals. Um, and it's been, it's really good. It's a difficult ministry. A lot of these guys are, are, are rough and, and tumble. Most of them never had a father figure in their life. Just completely wild, in and out of trouble constantly. Uh, we, I've wit been witnessing to them, obviously, over the last 15 years, and no one's ever come to faith. Loads of guys have been to church, loads of guys have read my books and, you know, heard the gospel. But um, just less than a year ago, one of the guys who was a real pain in the backside to me, um, super violent, super aggressive, came to faith. And uh, just before I came out here, we baptized him along with some others. And about 50 members of his family came, all, all non-believers. And it was just amazing to sit there, looking at them, hearing the gospel from a guy who you would have placed your life savings on, will never get saved. And so, yeah, he, he, the sweet moments are very few and far between often in our ministry. We lose more men than we, than we gain in terms of, of life, but... Um, yeah, what, yeah, 16 years of hard graft and perseverance, and it was a sweet moment. Yeah. It is rejoicing in those moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've written a whole stack of books, so I encourage you, if you want to hear more about Mez's story, uh, even ministry thinking, Google them. You can order them in. Or Google Drew Carey, trust me. Trust me. <laughs> trust me. Not near as exciting. Um, the, so you've got books out. Uh, we're here uh, also helping... The, promote this 20 schemes thing so we yeah, want yeah. to uh, not only be aware of that and be praying for that we'll be praying for a bit later on but we've also as a church here uh, if we're hanging around for morning tea and we encourage everybody to hang around morning tea uh, if you're ordering coffee or anything like that all the money that goes through the FPOS will be sending through to 20 schemes so I'm going to encourage you this morning buy a coffee buy for 50 bucks or something like that throw them some extra money we're just going to pass it on to these guys because they're yeah doing uh a better, ministry. That better be a good coffee, though. We have the best coffee. Fifty bucks. Okay. Who's on the coffee team today? But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, any money through there, we'll pass on to you guys, which is awesome. You're also here encouraging us um, from a perspective of sharing how Jesus has worked in your life. Do you want to give us a snapshot? Like, why should we listen to you? You just little Irishman popped up. Why, why should we listen to you? I don't. You shouldn't be listening to me, really, should you? Um, I don't know why you should listen to me, but uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, my, your story. Yeah, my testimony, yeah. So I mean, I, I come from a broken home, um, abandoned it too with my disabled sister, spent my life in um, children's homes in Ireland, shipped to England when I was seven, shipped around various institutions and foster homes, super abused, extremely abusive. My father, I never saw my mother, my father would coming in and out of my life, but he was a 
gambling addicted alcoholic and it never lasted long. Um, in trouble with the law, by the, time, by the time I was 12, I was pretty much institutionalized. First conviction at 12 for violence and then um, by the age of 15, 16, I was pretty much living full time uh, on the streets or in a, a squat. Do you guys know what a squat is? Derelict yeah. house or flats, crack houses. Yeah. So 15, 16, I was pretty much living there, dealing drugs, fighting, whatever I needed to do to get by. Um, got one of my closest friends was stabbed to death in a street fight. When I was 16, took, took a hit to the heart, bled to death in the back of a car. And then, you know, one minute he was having a cigarette and a cracker and a minute later he's gone. So I remember the day of his funeral, they were burying him and I just refused to go into the church. I'm like, there is no God, this is all not true, in stronger words. And um, yeah, anyway, life continued on, mental. I had a brilliant brainwave. I thought I'm gonna be like a middle-class student and travel around Europe and you know, find myself. Do they still do all that stuff here? Some. Yeah, and um, I needed some money, so I acquired some from a bank, and uh, which was funny because its commercial was the bank that likes to say yes, so I took great pleasure <laughs> in that. Uh, acquired some money, and then bought a false passport, flew to Spain to find myself, found myself in a week in trouble with the law, um, and not long after that was deported from Spain for trafficking offences. Ended up on the run, homeless for years on the streets, getting by. And then I heard the gospel when I was 21 years old in a, in a, in a place outside a community centre. <clears throat> These Christians turned up looking all geeky, centre partings, you know, nice teeth and cardigans, all that. And um, started telling me that I was a sinner, a group of us, and, and we needed Jesus. I went nuts and... So the first time I met Christians, I got arrested, uh, and... Um, that wasn't just for speaking back, I'm guessing. No, no, no. It was for, yeah, for the improper use of a hat in church. Um, <laughs> no, it wasn't. So I got arrested, destroyed a few things. Um, I thought, these idiots will not be back. The next week they came back, they came back again, they came back again, kept talking about Jesus and hell and sin. I'm listening to these guys thinking, you don't know anything about my life, who do you think you guys are? Uh, anyway, I was, I was mad, ended up in a situation and uh, of violence, stabbed a couple of guys and ended up in a maximum security jail. These guys came to visit me uh, when it was time to, I'm cutting really short, when it time to get out of prison, um, one of these guys gave me somewhere to live. And um, so I thought, I'll go and live at this geezer's house. Just, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are the same guys... You said you spat on, oh, yeah. beat up, yeah, abused, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. gave your house. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. a place to stay. So, yeah, so I couldn't, you can't get parole in the UK, at least not back then, unless you had an address. I, and I was homeless. And so they gave me an address to get me out. So I, I just used it to get out of jail. Um, but anyway, I went down to their house, the geezer's house, and um, I was thinking, yeah, I'm going to start my life again and that. Uh, I lasted about two weeks. I was back on the drugs about hanging out with my mates. But there was something inside me who was thinking, I don't want to do this anymore, I don't want to do this life. And uh, in, this, in this geezer's house, I found 
a book called a Matthew Henry Commentary on the Bible. Have you seen one of those bad boys? It's about as tall as me. And uh, I thought, you know what? I'll give this bad boy a crack, see what this is all about. And so I started reading the Matthew Henry Commentary. And um, I got saved reading the Book of Romans. And so I'd grown up all my life with social workers, drug counselors telling me, you're a victim of your circumstances. Or, you know, da 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 da. And then I run into the Apostle Paul who says, yeah, not really. You are a rebel against the holy gods. And regardless of what's happened to you, you need to take responsibility for your sin. So I really wrestled with that. Uh, but God, in his grace, led that for me to give my life to Christ. And then um, went to church for the first time, which was a jaw-breaking disappointment. And I remember thinking, I said to the guy who brought me, do you have to do this every week? And he went, oh, yeah. And I'm like... To be honest, mate, I'd rather be back in jail. Uh, and I wasn't joking. But I saw a guy took me under his wing, discipled me. I began to grow in the faith. I went to Bible college not long after that um, to become a proper Christian. So I, I know all sorts of Greek words, you know, for toilet and really helpful stuff. And uh, got my degree. Met my wife along the way, got married, ended up planting churches in Brazil with street gangs. Came back, felt a real heart for my own people, became a pastor in Scotland, and um, I've been there 16 years. God has been so, so good to me. I mean, all joking aside, all of my friends are dead that I grew up with, my family members. The average age of a man in my scheme, lifespan is 47. I'm 50, so I'm beating the curve um, already, and that's thanks to Christ. Changed my life. I've got a wife, I've got children. Um, yeah, sadly, none of my family have come to Christ yet, um, despite my witnessing, but yeah. Happy to be here, honestly. Um, I love Jesus, I love the church. Yeah, and I just wanna see people saved. It's awesome, and I, yeah, I think it's uh, amazing that It'd be very easy to think Christianity is such a middle-class thing that finding Jesus means moving into the middle class, but you've actually gone, no, I, I'm at home yeah, in yeah. the schemes, and they need to hear Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's great. Encu- it's also an encouragement to us to hear the faithfulness of those guys who persisted oh, yeah. with you. Yeah. Can I ask, um, do you still know, do you still stay in touch with those yeah. guys? So there were four guys, two of them deny Christ now. Even the, even the one who took me in. The two other guys, one's a pastor, one's a businessman. Yeah, we known each other, go back 20 odd years. We meet every year for a week and hang out together and pray together. And so, yeah, so unfortunately, yeah, two fell away, and, but two are going on strong, um, yeah, with the Lord. So. Now, uh, you're coming to Alpha this afternoon. You said this morning yes. was the last time you're talking, but um, you're coming back this afternoon. Uh, we're excited for that at Alpha. I just want to say, if there's anything this morning that Mez has spoken about or raised that you've got questions about, um, and whether you can make it or not today, there is a QR code on that. We do have a place where we can ask questions and explore this sort of stuff together. Uh, so follow along to that if you can't talk to someone today, and we'll get in touch with you. Um, but if you want to come along today to Alpha, please come and find me after the service, uh, just so we can make sure that we can make space for you there. But we're looking forward to that this afternoon as well.
We're going to pray for 20 schemes a bit later on. Let's pray for you now. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And look forward to hearing you preach in a moment. But um, well, Can you pray for one other thing? Yeah. So me and my wife have been fostering children in recent years. And just before the lockdown, we were given an eight-week-old baby to look after for a week. He was jonesing on drugs and in a bad way. And um, then the lockdown happened, and we've now had him for three years. Um, we can't give him back, though. It's just too precious. And so we have a court date on the 18th of December to formally adopt him. Um, and so we would appreciate prayer for that because this is the fourth date and every time something's happened to stop the adoption. And so just pray for us in that. That would be really good. His for name's sure. Nico. Nico? Yeah. And uh, it's Miriam, your Miriam, wife. my wife, yeah. For sure. Let's just pray for these guys. Dear Father God, we just thank you for... Uh, the unity we have in Jesus Christ. And when we hear Mez Sherry's story, we realise the significance of Jesus in our lives, that through him we have life, through him we can call ourselves brothers and sisters and children of God. And Lord, we thank you for the way you've worked in Mez's life, that he's uh, been able to stay faithful to you and you to him, even in the ups and downs. I thank you for, yeah, the journey in meeting his wife, Miriam, and she's been such a, an encouragement to him to be by his side, planting churches, having a big vision for those schemes. Thank you for putting it on their heart to reach the lost and the poor and the needy. Lord, we pray for Nico, and we just pray for those court dates that, yeah, that sounds like a really tough situation. And, um, yeah, for Mez... Uh, to, to take him into the household, to treat him like a child, Lord, such a privilege for them, but also for Nico. So we pray for those court dates to come through and to be successful in the adoption, that he can truly be called part of the family. And Lord, we just, um, yeah, we pray for Mez particularly, finishing a big week here in Australia, that he gets home safely and back to his own church uh, well and his own family. So Lord, thank you for the many ways you bless us and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for sharing. We're going to uh, read now from Mark chapter 8. And it is a story about uh, what happened to Jesus. Mark chapter 8 from verse 22. And Mez is going to walk us through it in a minute. So Jesus was with his disciples. From 22. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on, on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Thanks, Mess. Okay. Thanks again for having me and Matthew. I know Matthew disappeared last night. I think he's preaching somewhere else. I'm not quite sure where Matthew's preaching, but um, the guys here have really looked after us. Um, Drew is he's a good pastor. Um, been really welcoming, really hospitable to us, and you should never underestimate that. Um, and so I'm really grateful that you've invited us here. I'm really grateful that you um, have been, are praying for our ministry. We need, um, we need prayers, and um, yeah, just so encouraging. So, if 
you've got your Bible, you want to keep it open at Mark 8. And uh, I just want to talk a little bit around these verses before we get to these verses. But I was doing some research on Brisbane, and I've discovered that Brisbane is one of the most religious and ethnically diverse regions in Australia. Apparently, one in three people who live here were born overseas. I found that was a remarkable statistic, right? Um, one in five people who, who live here speak English as a second language. Just under 20% of residents identify as Catholic, which I thought was quite high. 10% as Anglican, and just over 47% say they have no religious affiliation at all. If you Google churches and religious organizations in Brisbane, you will discover that the city is home to a dozen witches' covens. Who knew that? Did you, did you know that? Fascinating. You've got Baha'i, whatever they are, Buddhists, Christadelphians, Assembly of God, Baptists, hooray, Church of Christ, Lutheran, Presbyterian, hooray, Uniting Church, whatever that is, Harry Krishnas, we all love a good Harry Krishna, Hindu, Islam, JWs, Mormons, Quakers, and then to top it off, there are at least 3,000 registered cults operating in Australia. Wow. It is a spiritual mess out there, isn't it? People are so confused when it comes to spiritual matters. People are so confused by this madness, this cacophony of voices, all claiming that they've got the answers to life's big questions. And there's so much out there that it's difficult for people to trust what is true and what is not. But that isn't the really big problem with the 26 and a half million people that live in your country. The really big problem that most of them are unaware of is that they are born with a form of spiritual blindness that they've, not got, they've got no clue about. And I'm going to be battling the rain here, aren't I? Come on, son. Regardless of how spiritual many residents in your city, in this country, think they are, they're actually blind to the things of God. They're blind to the truth of God. Not only can they not see the truth, but they're blind to their own spiritual blindness. And that's difficult, that's complicated for Christians to operate within a nation that is so far from the Lord. It can be overwhelming for us as Christians. It can be frustrating for us. And sometimes we wonder, what do we do? How can we function? How can we lift the name of Jesus above all these other things? And I think this text gives us some really, really helpful principles. Now, as we jump into Mark 8, there's a huge crowd following Jesus. As we jump into, the, into this chapter, 
Jesus feels, he, he looks, he sees the crowd, he has compassion on them, they're hungry. So he tells the disciples that they ought to feed the crowd. So look at Mark 8, verse 4. His disciples answered him, Jesus, how can, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? How are we going to get bread, Jesus? We're in the middle of nowhere. How are we going to feed these crowds? That seems a reasonable question, right? Well, no, not really. It's not a reasonable question at all. In fact, it's a pretty dumb question when you go back two chapters to Mark 6 and Jesus feeds 5,000 people on less food than he has in Mark 8. And then we've got the Pharisees starting in on Jesus. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> the Pharisees came and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Give us another sign, the Pharisees say. You've got the disciples saying, how are we going to feed them? Because they've forgotten that Jesus has already done it a bigger miracle than the one that he, needs, he needs to perform here. We've got the Pharisees just following him, trying to be a pain in the neck, trying to trip him up, trying to look for signs. Look what he says in verse 12. He sighs deeply in his spirit, Jesus. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to you. Listen, he knew the Pharisees weren't interested. There's a difference between someone genuinely seeking the truth of the Lord Jesus and someone who's just a pain in the neck trying to trip you up at every point. They were poison, these people. Jesus knew they were poison. Jesus knew they weren't really interested. They just wanted to discredit him. And so if you look at verse 15, Jesus warns his disciples about these guys. But he says, he cautions them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And that sounds a bit weird, but leaven is basically yeast. Jesus uses this illustration of yeast to warn his followers about these religious men who were not really interested in anything. And so back in Bible times, if you baked uh, bread, you'd put a bit of yeast, obviously, into the bread, and you'd hold a bit of yeast back for the next batch. Now, if a little piece of your yeast got, in, got contaminated, it didn't only contaminate one loaf, it contaminated every loaf. Okay? Basically, Jesus is saying to his disciples in verse 15, don't let this kind of willful disobedience, hard-heartedness, don't let that infect you and those who follow you. Pretty simple, right? Don't listen to these idiots. They're at it. Simple. Well, look how they respond in verse 16. The disciples began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So the disciples at this point are not getting it. They're not understanding what Jesus is trying to teach them. Look what Jesus says to them. Why are you discussing the fact that you've got no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? 
Look down at verse 21. Do you not yet understand me, he says. Now, jump forward in Mark 8 to Mark 27. And Jesus asks the most important question anyone can ask in the history of the human race. Look what he says in verse 27. Asks his disciples, and he says, Who do people say I am? Who am I? Crowds everywhere following me, hanging on my every word. I'm cracking out miracles left, right, and center. Who do these people think I am? And the answer to this question is the difference between heaven and hell. I'm going to come back to that question, so hold it in your mind. Because there's probably, in a crowd like this, a few people asking, who is Jesus? Is what these people in this place say about him, is that really true? Just hold on to those thoughts. He asked the question of his disciples, who do the crowds think I am? Look at the answers in verse 28. They said to him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. The crowd thought he was dead special, but they didn't clearly understand who he was. They thought he was a good dude. They thought he was a great religious teacher, but they had no real understanding. They were baffled. They were spiritually blind to his identity. So Jesus then in verse 29, if you read, talks directly to his disciples and he says to them, who do you, who do you say I am? That's what they say I am. Who do you say I am? And then you get Peter's great confession of faith, don't you? The end of verse 29. You are the Christ, he says. So Peter sees what the crowd do not. Peter sees what the crowd are blind to. Peter recognizes that Jesus is the promised Savior written about for thousands of years in the Old Testament. Peter sees that Jesus is the one that the whole of the Old Testament has been pointing towards. So if you end the text there at verse 29, you're thinking, well done, Peter, good job. At least you get it, son. But it doesn't end there. Because in verse 31, Jesus begins to explain to them what type of savior he's going to be. Look at the text. He began to teach them, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And look at the first sentence of verse 32, and he said this plainly. Simple. There's no misunderstanding. He didn't use big words. He learned in Bible college or some mad commentary. Very clear. Very simple. Now, look how Peter, who just confessed Christ as Lord, in verse 29, look what Peter says in verse 32. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Wow. He rebukes Jesus. He says, yes, you're the Savior. You're the coming Savior. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. Jesus says, this is what kind of Christ I'm going to be. And Peter says, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 Jesus. Hang on a minute. You don't have to do it. Calm down. Let's think this through. 
And then we get these famous words, don't we, in verse 33. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So what's going on here? Peter sees in verse 29 who Jesus is, right? But he doesn't completely understand the whole mission of why Jesus is here, why he's come, right? The crowds follow Jesus. They know he's special, but they don't fully understand who he is. And the Pharisees don't really care who he is. They're just refusing to believe. Do we see what's going on in Mark 8? This is a cheeky chapter, by the way, in the Bible. I love this chapter. Yes, Peter's the, uh, Peter says you're the Christ, but hang on a minute. We don't want you to be a suffering saviour. We, we're here because you're going to kick out the Romans. We're going to form a new political power structure in Jerusalem. But Jesus blows that expectation away. He says, no, I've, I've come to suffer. I've come to die on the cross. I've come to be crucified for the redemption of sinners. And Peter's brain, he can't comprehend it. So he sees the truth about Jesus, but he isn't quite able to see it all. Now, when we return back into the middle of this text and look at what these, this little strange little set of verses teach, if we do that, if we just apply that understanding into this text, we arrive somewhere very plain, as Jesus writes here. Very simple, but very profound. Let me just read these verses again. Sorry, verse 22. They come to Bethsaida. Some people brought to him a blind man, begged him to touch him, takes the blind man by the hand, leads him out of the village, spits on his eyes, lays his hands on him and said, do you see anything? He looks up, he goes, well, I see people, but uh, they look like trees walking, so I see, but not that clearly. Jesus lays his hands on him again, opens his eyes, his sight is restored, he sees everything clearly. That's a strange little story, right? For a number of reasons. And people have got all sorts of crackpot ideas about this text. I mean, there's nothing fruitier than a fruit loop of a commentator, right? I'll let you contextualize that one in your own language. One guy claiming to be an evangelical says, see, even Jesus doesn't get healing right every time. Really? That's what it's saying in this text? Another who ought to know better, and I won't out him, he says, what a great story about friendship, about bringing your mates to Jesus so he can save their souls. And again, if you look at this cl the story closely, you can see, well, it was the man's friends who, who had all the faith. The man didn't have any faith. And so the application is, well, we need to bring our friends to Jesus and beg him to open their eyes. Then there are others who get distracted by the little details. Jesus spat on his, spat on his face. Well, why don't you try that for an evangelistic strategy? Hey, a bit of eye spitting. I bet you there's some crackpot group out there who does that. Then he tells him not to go back into the town. What does that mean? Well, looking for these spiritual meanings and these hidden codes. But you know, when we think about 
what's going on before that text and what's going on after that text. There isn't any real drama in understanding what's happening here. Why would Mark, why would Mark write this if it was about Jesus failing? Why is the Lord included it in his words? Well, given what's gone on before, with the blindness, spiritual blindness of the crowds, with the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees, with the uh, 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 half-sightedness, if you like, of Peter, he sees, but he doesn't see everything, then I think we see the pattern, right? This is a miracle, primarily, I think, for the disciples than it is for everything else. Listen, they'd seen Jesus do amazing things. Amazing things. Imagine seeing that miracle in Mark 6 of the crowd being fed. And then next time you get to a crowd being fed, they're like, how's this going to work? I mean, have you got, these dudes got amnesia. I think I'd remember if a crowd of thousands of people got fed, you know what I mean, with a bit of fish and some bread. There's a pattern here. They'd seen his followers, they'd seen him do amazing things. And here he is teaching them a valuable lesson about the state of their souls as he deals with this blind man. He walked through the Gospels. The disciples don't don't fully comprehend who Jesus is, by the way, on day one. In fact, even after he dies and is resurrected and ascends to heaven, they're still struggling to comprehend the full story of the gospel. They thought their biggest problem was the Romans. And what they didn't understand, that their biggest problem was that they were separated from God Almighty. They were spiritually blind and they were under the wrath of God. And so the theme of these verses is very simple. Seeing, but not seeing. And so when you look at these few verses, when you look at these few verses with that wider range, if you like, we've, we've, we've come out, we've, we're in the text, now we've come out with a wider lens view. When we look at it with the wider, wider lens view, it takes on a more significant meaning. The problem with the disciples in Mark 8 is they are blind to their blindness. The problem is not that they can't see the truth of who Jesus is. The problem is they can only see part of it. And now we have an advantage as post-crucifixion believers with the Bible in our hand, because you can read a passage like this and think to yourself, how thick were these guys? It's obvious who Jesus is. How can they not see who Jesus is and why he came? And yet, if we just stop and think for a second... How different are we to the disciples? I mean, if we're Christians here today, then we know that the real reason, the only reason that we can answer the question about who Jesus is, is not because we're dead clever and we worked it out straight away, is but because God, in his wisdom and mercy and grace, by his Holy Spirit, helped us to comprehend it. We are saved. We know who Jesus is because it was supernaturally revealed to us by God's Spirit. Ask any Christian in the building, hopefully, fingers crossed, 
Ask any Christian in the building, and they will tell you the first time they heard the gospel of Jesus, the first time they heard the, the good news of, about Jesus, they had absolutely no clue what you were saying to them. I mean, it sounds like a really bad script for a sci-fi movie, right? Nuts. Absolutely. Fruitcake City. Now, for some of us, God was super gracious, right? And he revealed the truth to him about himself very quickly. Some of us who are really blessed, and here's a word for young Christians, do not get lost in the lie that you'd love to have a testimony like mine. Don't do that. My testimony is not cool. It's not trendy. It's not great. It's not amazing. It's not exciting. It's horrific. If you come from a Christian home with Christian parents, get down on your knees and thank the Lord every night. Because I give my arms and legs to have your testimony instead of mine. And so some, maybe some of you, you know, you've grown up with that message. You've grown up. You've, you've grown up never not believing in Jesus. Surrounded, a Christian home. That's fine. But even then, your understanding of the faith grew and developed over time. It, just, it didn't come instantaneously. For some of us, it takes longer, doesn't it? It took four years and three different prisons from the first time I heard the gospel to when I confessed my sin and put my trust in Jesus Christ. Four years. I was like the man, the blind man in the text, you know. I, I could see initially, I could see, yeah, okay, Jesus, God, I can see that. But it, it wasn't clear. I didn't understand everything about it. And even when I did come to faith, there were massive, massive gaps in my biblical understanding. I didn't know the Bible was the word of God. I didn't know you had to go to church. I thought that was punishment. And we, we don't all come to a true understanding of the good news of Jesus at the same pace either, do we? Every Christian in this building today has got a story to tell about their journey to spiritual truth. For some of us, it took time, bit by bit, the light dawns. But often the light doesn't switch on automatically for, for some of us. For some of us, it's a labored process. Very few people I know come to faith in Christ overnight. Normally, we have been watching and listening, observing Christians and their message for some time. And then one day, light dawns, the Holy Spirit opens our hearts and our minds to the truth, and we're saved by the gospel. And in the moment we are saved instantaneously we realize just how blind we've been to the world. You don't remember that? You become a Christian and you're like, you just see the world with new eyes, right? You're like, how? I've been alive 30 years. How have I missed that? I've been sleepwalking to my death for decades. And I think this, this small account in Mark 8 is showing us this. The difficulty it took the Lord in getting the disciples to truly see who he was is mirrored 
in the difficulty he has, or appears to have, if you like, it's not, it's a purposeful miracle, is mirrored in the fact that this man initially sees, but not clearly, Jesus touches him and his sight is opened. What Jesus is showing his disciples is this, look, you like this dude. You will like this dude. Yeah, Peter, well done. I'm the Christ. But you don't like any of the rest of it, do you? Because you don't understand it. And that leads us to very simple applications, by the way. And it's, one of them is this. As a church, let me encourage you in your community. And um, people say to me all the time, oh, thank you for working in such difficult places and hard places. La, 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 la. And, and, and I appreciate that. I don't work in a hard place. I work in a dead easy place. I get up every day in my life and I'll have conversations about Jesus with people. I imagine, brilliant, right? I mean, I, I feel embarrassed when people say, well, you're, you're, yeah, look, there's crying, there's this, there's that, whatever. I grew up with that. I tell you what's hard. When you're trying to reach people with a nice job, a nice car, a decent salary, they're not worried about life trying to get them in this culture to see and understand the gospel. That's hard. And the temptation, and all ministries hard, effectively, but the temptation sometimes, being pastors or churches, is that we try and work out gimmicks. You know, some fad comes along, you know, should we, should we receive a sense of Should we do this? Should we do that? Blah, 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 blah. And we forget the text that says, Jesus spoke plainly to them. There's nothing sexy about the gospel. There's no trick to it. There's no gimmick to it. All we've got to do is present the good news of Jesus simply, clearly, and pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal himself to people and that they would see Jesus. Just the power of the gospel People are blind to Jesus out there in the world. They're blind to their blindness. I know I was talking to Ross about family members and how difficult it is, even as pastors for a long time, 25 years. No one in my family could care less. Completely either hostile or indifferent to the gospel. And, and I've been witnessing to them the best I can over... 25 years, they can sit, clearly see my life has been transformed. That's inarguable. And so sometimes we ask ourselves the question, what is stopping them? What's going on here? Am I doing something wrong? Do I need to have take a different approach? What's going on? Well, what's going on, Mark 8 says, is that the world is spiritually blind. And even when we make the gospel clear, they look blank at us. Here's a word of encouragement. Here's Jesus speaking in Mark 8. Jesus. Hey, pretty, I'm pretty sure Jesus knew how to handle the gospel, right? I'm pretty Jesus was a great contextualizer. Jesus, the God-man, is speaking. And people are still scratching their heads going, what? But don't freak out. Hard-heartedness and sometimes a lack of fruit and difficulty in family and friends is not always an indication that we're doing it wrong. It's an indication of just how lost people 
are. And it should drive us not to new gimmicks or new ways of doing things. It should drive us more into prayer for them, right? We need to pray for the Holy Spirit to come into their lives and to reveal Christ to them. That's the job of the Spirit. He's, you know, it's to keep pointing us to Jesus and pointing us to Jesus and pointing us to Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our minds, who open our, opens our hearts to accept the fact that in order to be saved by God, we need to confess our sins to him. We need to repent of our sins. That means literally turning away from our old life, our old way of doing things, our old way of thinking about God, and to put our faith and trust in Jesus alone. And that step of faith is huge when you first come to salvation because people ask me in the first week, I'm like, somebody said, I hear you become a Christian. I'm like, yeah, I don't know what that means, but I'm definitely becoming one of these Christiany people, whatever that is. And, they were like, and I knew nothing. I was a sinner. Jesus died and saved me. I couldn't explain it to you. I couldn't give you this massive, cogent answer, theological. I just like, no, I'm a sinner. There's no doubt I'm sick of living this life. I'm sick of it. I'm going to throw my lot in with Jesus. Jesus, help me. It really is that simple. And so people say, what, what, what do you think I should do for my, my unbelieving family and friends or, or my neighbors? And, and my answer isn't meant to be trite and superficial, but it's simply this. Keep praying to God for the Spirit. Pray that he would cause blind eyes to see. Pray that he would break hard hearts. Because here's what we need to understand as a church. Unbelief is a sickness of the heart, not of the eyes. What do I mean by that? Well, think how many miracles Jesus does. If you ever read the New Testament and see how effective that was for evangelism. I could levitate across this room right now. That'd be pretty cool, right? Would that make any difference in your life to becoming a Christian? What if I heal somebody in a, in a wheelchair or I raised a, a dead body to life? We tell ourselves, well, if I saw something, prove it, prove it. If I see it with my own eyes, then I'll believe it. But the truth is, we wouldn't believe it. We just think, what's the gimmick there? Where's the wires? Do it again. Do a different one. Show me something else, bigger and better. How do we know? Look, uh, that's exactly the gig. That's the, what the Pharisees were doing, right? In short, we'd find a hundred other reasons not to believe so we could continue in our sin. And so Mark wants us to know, the Lord wants us to know, the human race is not only spiritually blind, it is blind to its Blindness, that people don't want to see the truth. They're hard-hearted. And that's why it takes a supernatural work of the Spirit to break down those defenses. In, there's, you know, there's a dude in Saul, a, a dude named Saul. and Maybe he was in Saul, but there's a dude called Saul in Acts 9.18. We read in Acts 9.18. I love this. He was a, I mean, he was a killer hated Christians, hated the church, hated anything to do with it. Brutal dude. And then God, Jesus visits him, 
he saves, and we read in Acts 9, verse 18, the scales fell from his eyes, and he could really see. Cool, right? Only God can do that. People can take you to church. People can study the Bible with you. People can answer all of your questions. I mean, think of the time, the amount of time that disciples spent with the Lord. Think about everything they saw, what they heard, and yet they were still struggling to comprehend who he was. Go to God's. If you're struggling to understand who Jesus is, pray. Lord, give me understanding. Help me to see. If you're praying for a friend or an unbelieving family member, pray the same thing. You know, as Christians, and I'm nearly finished, as Christians, we can often get frustrated with unbelievers, and particularly with those whom we've witnessed to multiple times. But you know, sometimes I think we need to stop and, and take a breath. Remember Ephesians 2.9, for grace you've been saved through faith, and this, not your own doing, the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Sometimes we forget we've been in the, the walk so long, just how difficult it once was for us to see the truth. It's the same for baby Christians. We're discipling them, and maybe we look, at, look around, and know we do it as elders and leaders, but maybe fellow church members, you think, why isn't that person at this level by now? How come that person who's been saved two years is far above that person who's been saved five years, or, and we do all these, these little comparisons in the church. And we forget it's all a work of the Holy Spirit. And people that are at different paces come from different backgrounds with different understandings. Often people say to me, how, how, shall I, how can I pray for my unbelieving family and friends and, and work colleagues? Well, pray for spiritual clarity. Pray that the gospel of Jesus would ring loud and clear in the hearts and minds that the gospel would chime louder and more clearer than all of these thousands of other voices in the world, distracting them. Pray for yourself. Lord, help me speak plainly. No big fanciness. Just declare the gospel, pray that the Holy Spirit would do the bizzo, sorry, would do the business. And, and let's rem remind one another that even though we're saved, we still don't fully understand everything, right? Some doctrines are difficult for us to understand. It, it, it's a struggle. Some doctrines we just plainly don't like. None of God's people see clearly. Listen, I've got two theology degrees. I've preached well over a thousand sermons in my life. And there are still lots of things in the Bible that I don't see clearly, even after 25 years of study. Now, I understand many things. I've prayed, I've read over the years. But, you know, nobody in the church, not a leader, not, not, your, not your biggest boffin, has got 20-20 spiritual vision. Because that only comes with time and ultimately ends in glory. So we never arrive in Christian circles. Keep reading, keep praying, 
Keep your minds and your hearts open. The problem in many churches is Christian people hear the gospel, they come to faith, it's amazing, it's brilliant, they join a nice church, they make nice friends, they've got lots of kids in the church for their, uh, uh, their kids to play with, it's a great little Christian subculture, brilliant. And then they don't grow very f- much past that. I'm happy, I'll sit here, I'm comfortable here. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, you know what I mean, chill. I'm relaxing, but that's not the Christian life. What we learn here, the spiritual knowledge and experience we gain here, we take into eternity. We've got to be patient as well. Patient. You know, the curse of our generation, isn't it? It's that people want it everything, they want it on a plate, they want it now, they want it instant, 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 instant. And unfortunately, Christian maturity and sanctification are hard-fought battles over many decades. Let me leave you with this, you know. The single most important question in this text is this. Who do you say I am? Who do you think Jesus is? In a group this size, there's going to be all sorts of people who would answer that question in all sorts of ways. Maybe some of you are resisting, Maybe some of you are completely blind, uncertain about Jesus. Don't worry, take your time. Ask your questions to Ross. Ask all the hard ones. Ask all the awkward ones. We love that. Pray you would see clearly your need for Christ's forgiveness. The Bible says this, Today if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. So take your time, but don't wait too long. And certainly do not wait to give your life to Christ before it's all straight in your mind. That's another lie we tell ourselves. I'm going to get this, 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 I get my life in order, I get this. No, no. If you know you're a sinner and you know Jesus is the Savior, that's enough for now. Just throw yourself on the mercy of God. Listen, that's what I did 25 years ago. I knew God was my creator. I knew I'd ignored him. I knew I'd chased after the things of this world. I knew I wasn't a sinner. I knew I wasn't happy with my life. And even though I didn't have a clue what half of these weirdos were talking about, I threw my lot in with Jesus. I was raw in the beginning. I got myself a great mentor and a, t- and a, a, a guy who taught me and sat with me. And then the lights began to slowly come on. The dark room, the dark bitterness of my soul that had shrouded me for so long gradually became lighter and lighter and brighter and brighter. And I grew strong. Once the scales fell from my eyes, there was no turning back. I was all in. And trust me, you can be all in too if you just turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a word. What a, what a, what a, what a text Matthew is. In many ways, Lord, we're all like that the blind guy. Some of us can't see. Some of us can see, but not very clearly. Some of us see fully. 
our need for Jesus. And every one of us, at whichever stage we're at in this building, we need your help, Lord. Help us. Help us to see. Lift the veil, lift the scales from our eyes. Help us in our week to be those who just speak plainly and simply, prayerfully, and leave the rest of the Holy Spirit. Pray for those among us who may be discouraged in this congregation after years and years and years and years of witnessing with no fruit. Help us just to persevere, just to keep serving. Lord, while people have breath, they have hope. If there's any in this building, Lord, who still do not yet know you, I pray, 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 Lord, by your Spirit, you would open their eyes, give them understanding, grant them new life in Jesus' name, Lord. Help us all, whoever we are, to leave this place today loving Jesus just that little bit more. And we pray these things in his name and for the honor and glory of yours. Amen.